Greetings to the IAOMS community around the world. This is Deborah Zabladil, and today for the IAOMS podcast series, I have Dr. Gary Ballou with me. Welcome, Dr. Ballou. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful having you. Dr. Ballou is currently at Emory in Atlanta by way of Sydney, Australia. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, it's quite a, quite a convoluted uh, journey. I did dental school in, in Sydney, Australia, and then did three years of general practice residency, and then I did oral maxillofacial surgery for four years, and finished in 96, and at that point decided I needed to learn a little bit more about temporomandibular joint surgery. And that's what brought me to interview here in the US and some places in Europe, and I ended up sticking in Atlanta at Emory for a couple of years and did my fellowship in pelvic nafic and uh, temporary middle joint surgery. Went back to Sydney to practice for a little bit, was quite unhappy, wanted an academic career, and came back to uh, Emory in 2001 where I went to medical school for a couple of years and now I've been on faculty ever since. Wow, that's, yeah, that's quite a geographic journey, isn't it? It's been quite the experience. Yeah. What is it that you love about the academic piece of your career? I mean, what is it that drew you to it? There are several things that I think just make it fascinating. One is, no matter what you do every day, uh, every day is just so different, and that's in part due to the residents that you interact with. You can do the same procedure a hundred times, but doing ten residents makes every procedure and every day different to the day before. With that comes enormous amounts of challenge, but satisfaction. And also the complexity of the cases, I'm very much into major surgery and I enjoy what academics has to offer from that perspective. Wonderful. Um, I've interviewed a few other academics here um, and what a couple have said is it's very demanding. Um, being an academic is a, a very demanding career. Would you agree with that? Well, absolutely. I think physically it's demanding given the, the nature of the surgery and how often you do it. I don't think any of us anticipated, well maybe some did, uh, you know, work, a work week of 60 hours is very typical and very normal. Work continues on Saturdays and Sundays in, in terms of publication and reviews and uh, programmatic uh, issues to take care of. Um, so it, it's demanding emotionally also, I think, in part because you're dealing with residents and their emotions. And the variation amongst the residents is quite challenging. Having to learn to teach 20 completely unique individuals using slightly different teaching methods, mm -hmm. uh, I find exhausting, but, uh, but gratifying at the same time. Not everyone learns the same, right? Uh, correct, and unfortunately we're not taught to be teachers, so we tend to sort of project our own education and how we were taught onto everybody else, assuming that they will learn the same way that we did. And that works well for some and uh, quite poorly for others, so that, there's a lot of, lot of challenges to, to deal with. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, dealing with the emotional state of your students at times, of the residents at times. Um, what kinds of things have you seen? I think if you go back a couple of uh, generation or two, at least in my era, uh, when you go back 20 or years or so in terms of doing residency, it was very dogmatic, the education typically. Uh, it was very tough education and tough meaning unforgiving and there was a one way to learn and you did it and you got through it because you were so passionate and determined. I think it's a different generation now so uh, it's much less hierarchical and residents sort of look for much more equality between attendings and residents which was certainly not the case 20 years ago and therefore you really, if you want to optimise and maximise what you get out and you, 
try to treat them in a much more kind and gentle way. Excuse me, not necessarily bad, but it's certainly a challenge. Sure. And um, one of the things that that we keep hearing is um, about, you know, sort of the uh, millennial generation, that feedback is very important to them. Do you find that in in your academic um, life that they want more feedback, perhaps, than other generations have? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, and again, if you compare the current group who want feedback on a daily basis and, and a very directed feedback as in terms of being very specific about what issues were good, what issues were not good, it's quite the contrast to 20 years ago where you didn't need a ton of feedback. You were very self-aware of what the ideal presentation of surgery looked like, what yours looked like, and you knew yourself where the areas were that you needed to to work on uh, without feedback. I don't recall receiving anything, certainly nothing written. Interesting. Uh, but now it's it's very, very different. And the manner in which you provide that feedback is also very important. They have expectations now that it will be delivered in a very gentle and supporting manner. Right. Um, so what about um, teaching the sort of the bedside manner piece or the, you know, how to deliver piece of difficult news to a family member or to a patient. How does that happen in your... You know, that requires the, the individuals, from, if you're talking from my perspective, from yes. the residents. From your perspective. You know, I think the first time you you deliver unpleasant news, which is usually uh, it's either a cancer-related diagnosis or as happens in academics, it's informing family that someone has passed away uh, during surgery or immediately afterwards. But, various reasons, uh, or even providing feedback regarding you know, a complication that occurred intraoperatively. It's challenging. Uh, I think the, the, the best approach is, is just to be empathetic and deliver it in a, in a very monotone, sort of supporting manner. And once you've done it once or twice, it becomes a little easier to do the first couple of times. It's, I think, challenging emotionally, but you realize if you're going to be a surgeon and you're going to be an academic, for that matter, or any type of surgery, there are going to be situations for which the outcomes are not pleasant. Hopefully they're infrequent and rare, um, but you just deliver it with honesty and integrity and, and I think a little empathy. Yeah. And so how do you, um, how do you, how do your residents learn that? To, is it, is it by doing and then doing again? Are they in with, in the room with you when you're delivering that kind of news? How do they, how do they understand what that looks like? You know, that's a very difficult area to educate them because A, it's infrequent and therefore not every resident's going to be exposed to it. When you come to deliver it to an individual, I think it probably would be reasonable to have a resident present. The fact that matter is in the heat of the moment and given the acuity of the situation, often residents are excluded, not, not intentionally, yeah. from that dialogue and therefore they miss out. And therefore, they're going to have to sort of develop their own their own skill set to be able to manage that. Yeah. And I think if you have a reasonable amount of empathy and a, a degree of understanding and insight, it, it, while it's challenging and difficult emotionally, it, it's a very doable thing. Thank you. Um, turning to another topic, um, since you have had the opportunity to practice, uh, although briefly, in Australia and now um, here in the States, Talk about the, the comparisons, the contrast, um, 
what, what do you see in differences or similarities between the two? It's probably easier to start with the differences and okay. uh, they, they're actually quite, uh, quite substantial. Several differences. The first one, if you look at the provision of, we'll call it routine oral and maxillofacial surgery, dental implants, third molars. Here in the US, the vast majority of that is done under intravenous sedation in an office setting. And with that comes a certain level of stress and anxiety related to the anesthesia as, as is done. In Australia, that's very, very different. The healthcare system is not a managed healthcare system. So if you have a group of six or seven patients who require third molars to be removed, the vast majority of oral maxillofacial surgeons are going to do it in a hospital setting where the patient is put to sleep by an anesthesiologist or anesthetist. Mm -hmm. And therefore, all it comes down to is really doing the surgery on one patient after another in a very relaxed environment mm -hmm. uh, without the inherent stress of providing the anesthesia. So that makes... Uh, life from a surgical point of view a lot less stressful than Australia mm -hmm. and obviously the lack of managed health care means that you know, patients pay a fee for service mm -hmm. and then claim it back from their own insurance so the, the management of the patient both financial and surgical it tends to be much much easier. Mm, interesting, very interesting. Uh, well I don't think anyone would say that our healthcare system is um, easy here, right? I think that's a fair comment. There are many challenges to the, to the healthcare system here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, um, you know, just again, kind of pivoting a little bit, what about your colleagues internationally? You are a member of IAOMS. Correct. And um, that gives you access to members and surgeons and uh, peers around the world. How have you tapped into that? How do you... Um, access others uh, around the world do you how do you engage tell us a little bit about that i think probably several levels there um, if we talk a little bit about uh, australasia um, i still travel back to um, sydney on two or three times a year to operate and mm. teach mm -hmm. my alumni who um, are not overly familiar with uh, temporomandibular joint surgery so we tend to do a lot of total joint replacements um, which I find very, uh, very interesting. And obviously some of those are colleagues that I went through my education in Australia with, some of them are not. In addition to that, I find that there are many international colleagues that reach out to myself and I guess many other surgeons in the US by virtue of, uh, I assume, our reputation or whatever, seeking advice or guidance and uh, in fact offering to um, transfer patients. So I've had patients come from the United Kingdom have some from Italy, some France, uh, where they didn't feel comfortable performing a certain type of, of surgery. So I find that very, very interesting. In, in addition, through the American Society of TMJ Surgeons, I've been exposed to multiple members of uh, IOMS, particularly from South America, mm. uh, who were seeking continued guidance and development of their surgical techniques in TMJ surgery. So I find it very collegial, very easy to work with those individuals and, and a great opportunity to learn things that may be a little different to the way we do it. So I think it's a huge benefit for all. Great. Um, in terms of, you know, the trajectory for the future of this specialty, when you look ahead 10 years, 15 years, what do you see? Now, I think the last decade has been generally a very positive one for oral and maxillofacial surgery. Uh, we continue to grow. 
we continue to broaden our skill set with craniofacial surgery, head and neck oncology, and microvascular reconstruction. It really has taken off in multiple locations. Uh, you combine that with the fact that the American College of Surgeons recognizes us as a, as a, as a specialty, I think has been very, very positive, and I see, I see overall a very positive future for oral and maxillofacial surgery where we really can compete with just about any surgery of the head and neck region. I think some of the challenges that will come, particularly here, I, I think in the United States, is the provision of anesthesia. Uh, I would like to think that the operator anesthesia model will continue, but I have some concern many other countries have made very clear decisions regarding eliminating that sort of approach. But in the face of the managed healthcare system here, I, I can't imagine how you'd be able to provide that care for patients. So that remains probably one, I think, challenge that will have to be dealt with on a, on a political level and an educational level. But I think the future for the specialty is, it's, it's, it's very, very positive. Wonderful, that's great to hear. Uh, when students come into your, uh, you know, to, into Emory, and you're working with them, do you find that there's a real passion, um, sort of a trend around, you know, one type of surgery that they're very, very interested in, or do you think it's very unique to the individual? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's relatively unique to the individual. I think they're all passionate about dental alveolar surgery and implantology because they certainly, many of them perceive that as being the core of what they anticipate doing. They also tend to be, I think, quite passionate about trauma. Whether they continue to practice that after graduation is different. Trauma after graduation means taking call, working mm -hmm. on weekends, mm -hmm. and, and that can wear thin after a while on individuals. Some of the other surgeries, particularly the, the temporomandibular joint surgery, I think the vast majority of residents, while they appreciate being exposed to it, really don't have the mindset or desire to continue that practice few do with the orthognathic aspect so it really is very much resident dependent though and there are those who are very motivated and really want to join very good practices that practice the full scope and want to continue to do so. Others are very much focused on, on, on dental alveolar and implants and sometimes it's very hard to perceive that initially you don't really know it until a year or two after graduation which in some situations you, you can be a little disappointing to see someone limit their practice after such a good education. But I think that every academician is exposed to that. And what about um, the, the topic of uh, mentoring? So I'd like to talk to you about that. Um, what have you experienced, either um, in regard to being a mentor to someone or having a mentor? So I, um, I did not have a mentor during my residency, uh, nor my fellowship. I was very much self-driven. We at Emory have instituted mentorship many, many years ago with each of the full-time faculty being assigned several residents and meeting monthly with them to mentor them. Again, I find it quite challenging because I'm not sure the majority of them need uh, mentorship. It really should be a, a very self-driven uh, career trajectory <coughs> in terms of wanting to learn in practice. There are those individuals who need guidance in terms of how better to approach both the surgical learning and the didactics, and, then, and mentorship can be reasonable there. 
for me, mentorship is more about looking up to someone. And there have been many colleagues of mine uh, over the years that I've had much admiration for and seeing what they've achieved and what their scope of practice is and what they've done uh, for the specialty is really the only mentorship I feel is necessary for me. It, it motivates me to want to do and be and emulate them. Mm-hmm. I think residents now are a little different to that and I think mentorship is is beneficial for a number of them, but it's so resident dependent. Absolutely, and it's it's tricky sometimes to find that right fit. Um, it seems for in any profession that you know where the uh, there's sort of a meeting of the minds of the mentor and mentee, and they're both equally invested, etc. I, I would completely agree with that, and uh, sometimes we get it wrong, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges in academics for me is not necessarily the surgery. Or but it's dealing with such different personalities and their varying needs, in part related to their need for direction and guidance or being mentored. And sometimes my personality doesn't really line up uh, very well with an individual's personality, and that becomes challenging. How can two completely unique and different personalities manage to help and guide each other? Uh, it generally wouldn't work if you were doing research with a colleague and you had completely different approaches. It tends to be very problematic. So sure. the same thing can happen with a resident and uh, unfortunately there's, there's no magic way to get around that. Right. Human nature. Um, a, a final question for you and that is if you were to give your residents one piece of advice about their career, they said just tell me one thing that I can walk away with, what would it be? Strive for perfection in everything that you do and never, ever accept second best. Mm. Wise words. Thank you so much, Dr. Ballou. Really appreciate your time today and making, um, making the space in your schedule to have this conversation. Well, thank you for the opportunity for the dialogue. It's most appreciated. Great. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.